Welcome, all listener, to another episode of Spam, 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 Hummock. This is episode 125 of the podcast, and we have another interesting episode lined up for you. It's just me and Draxneth this week, actually, and I'm, it was recorded under somewhat odd circumstances because, of course, I was away the week that we, uh, I was away from home the week that we recorded this. I was up in northern Alberta in the city of Fort McMurray, and uh, not a good place to find good internet speeds. In fact, one of the best places I could find for internet connectivity was the local pub. Certainly, I wasn't going to be doing any recording from my hotel where I was pulling down an amazing three megabits per second at peak. And I gripe about this a whole bunch during the episode, which actually leads us to some interesting conversation to start off with about, you know, internet technology and connectivity woes of yesteryear and, you know, how at one point in our lives, three megabits per second would have seemed like amazingly fast. But now that I can regularly pull like 800 at home, 800 megabits at home, uh, suddenly it seems not even pedestrian, but, you know, positively plodding and slow how far we've come. Conversation moves on from there talk about uh, the differences between Asian countries and North America, where internet technology and its deployment were concerned or have been concerned. Draxneth has some experience in this regard. And then we turn to discussing memory cards and camera technologies, kind of keeping the nostalgia trip going because of course we've seen a lot of innovation in those spaces too over the last couple of decades. Talk a bit about media conversion from like optical media to, you know, playable video formats on like your PC or a uh, some sort of handheld device, virtual dub, daemon tools, stuff that some of you probably haven't used in like a decade come up for mention. I know I remember those tools very fondly. Actually, I still occasionally dip into daemon tools when I'm trying to do recovery operations on some video DVDs. Talk a little bit about that in the episode as well. And then we kind of verge off from there into things like flying cars and old TV series and old movies. Does anybody remember the Explorers? That was a weird one. And, uh, end up talking about a Star Wars screen test, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes, a rather fun little uh, thing that I found online, actually, just the day before we recorded the episode. So, uh, as always, of course, we are hosted now on Anchor.fm, which is a newer and much more social podcast hosting platform. If you're listening to us in the Anchor app, you can, of course, give our episodes applause. You can like the podcast or individual episodes thereof. Please do also consider sharing episodes out of the app to your friends or alternatively visit us at spam, 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 humbug.com and share the episode show note articles there. And as always, this episode of Spam, 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 Humbug is brought to you by our Patreon backers. Thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and the Codex by that means. And if you would like to back the podcast, you can do so. Patreon.com slash Ultima Codex is where to go for that. And there's a few reward tiers there. Do feel free to chip a dollar or two into the pot. And as always, a hearty thank you to our co-producers, Seth, Goldenflame, Chris, Brickbat, Dominic, Violation, Cranberry, Christopher, Bruce, Darkwraith, Dragon, Helgriff, Gronk, Pascal, and Thorwan. And now, on with the show. I apologize for the background noise because, uh, yes, I'm <laughs> the Wi-Fi at my hotel is a bit shit and, uh, at best is giving me about three megabits, which, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, there was a time, there was a time I have lived through a time when having a three megabit download would have cost you enterprise level dollars and would have been 
the cat's meow. It would have been the best thing you'd ever experienced. But when I can pull 800 to a gigabit at home on a good day, I'm sorry, it just doesn't happen. No, I'm good, thank you. My dinner just arrived. <laughs> I remember back then when the domestical speed, consumer speed were 128 kilobit, uh, 256, 512, and uh, I had a job where our internet connection was 32 megabits. Ooh, that's the lap of luxury. Yeah, and we were working with some Koreans, and the Koreans had from, they were from several universities in Korea, and the okay. link between each university was 10 gigabit. Wow, that must have been on fiber. And we were talking about it, and from what we saw, they invested in, in, in connectivity and internet and information technology in general more than all of Latin America together. I'd believe it. I mean, it's like a lot of the a lot of the uh, Pacific Rim, you know, the Asian countries along the Pacific Rim seem to have gone that road, right? Like Korea, very, very high tech. Definitely a lot of investment in communications infrastructure. Japan is not all that different. Um, I think Taiwan is pretty ahead of the curve too. Versus, yeah, anywhere in the Americas at that time, South America, even North America didn't have, I mean, you're probably talking about the days when, you know, I was rocking a 28.8. Talking about 2005, 2006. Oh, okay, so a little bit later, I would have been on like a DSL connection, but still, like you're talking a, a couple megabits at best, right? Yeah. Maybe 10, maybe 10 megabits by then. You know, 10 gigabits would have been beyond, beyond any comprehension, let alone aspirational. It would have been beyond any understanding. Yeah. And one of the campuses had a link of 20, actually. 20 gigabits? Yeah. Well, it's impressive even by today's standards. Mm, they were part of a, an association called Pragma, Pacific Rim Association for Grid Middleware Assembly. We were working with the computing grids. Awesome. For Computer Center and, and several others. Korea Institute of uh, Technology and Information. Korea Institute of Science and Technology Information. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we had really... Well, I mean, then again, too, like back in 2005, 2006, I was certainly not doing anything to even put myself near the, the cutting edge of internet connectivity. I was just out of school and kind of just trying to scrape by on what I could. But... Uh, Still, nothing like that. Nothing like that, I think, was even, you know, within the aspirations of the telco companies around here. Maybe for their highest-end business company or customers would you see speeds like that. But I don't even think then that they had anything like that on offer. Back then, I think the best the ISP were offering in Mexico was 2 megabit. Well, that was top speed back then. Mm. 
Yeah, honestly, I couldn't tell you what the top speed I was pulling at the time was. I can't even remember where I was living in 2005, 2006. And at that job, the, our connectivity to the United States was 32 megabits. And we had connectivity with other campuses in Mexico, and it was 155 megabits. Which is not a bad speed for that day and age. It was pretty good. But still, nothing to, you know, nothing to compare with. Like, it still, it still floors me that my kids are growing up in a household where, you know, the, the idle internet speed is around 400 megabits, and the peak is, like I say, in the 800 to gigabit range, depending on conditions. They'll, they'll never know what it is to wait for content to load in a browser window. <laughs> they, they will never know that. Unless I like deliberately go in and you know mess with the QoS settings so that all of a sudden all of their endpoints are at like half a megabit, but why would I do that, right? But like, the, yeah, they just, were born with this. Yeah, they are. They are the digital natives, and it just—I don't know—it's amazing to me. I mean, having grown up through all of that and having struggled through, you know, issues related to bad connectivity. Three hundred bots per second. Exactly. I'm still, I guess I shouldn't be, but I am still shocked whenever I actually look at what my download speeds are. It just floors me every time. But I guess it's good to, you know, have that memory of what went before. So you can kind of, it, I mean, it's, in some ways, it's really great to wax nostalgic. Oh my gosh, at the, at the place I'm working at, I had to go digging around behind this desk that I was parked at trying to find um, another power outlet on the wall because I needed to plug some more stuff in. And I'm looking down and like, obviously they haven't cleaned behind this desk in years. And why would they? Like the cubicle's been there probably forever. And then it's pushed up against the, it's pushed up against, you know, the wall. It's, the cleaning staff aren't regularly going in behind there. So I'm looking down, you know, between the desk and the wall and I'm seeing like, Whoa, there's a parallel cable. Whoa, there's a zip disk. Wow, it's like an archive of forgotten technology <laughs> back here. I remember my Spark U drive. It was first I had the zip drive and I purchased the Spark U, which was a it was literally a hard drive, removable hard drive. It was pretty much like a zip disk, but it was a hard drive. You had the drive, the, uh, the, the drive, and you had the removable disk which you would insert into the drive for reading. They were made of metal. There were those uh, the heads for reading them, and they sounded like a hard drive. Because it was a hard drive. Yeah, it was. Just had an odd. It was a hard drive with a really weird form factor. Reminds me of nothing so much as the uh, the PDP 11s that I spent one summer programming, um, and you know the hard drives such as they were were rather large platters with a diameter of you know a vinyl record and about an inch thick. And you had to like twist uh, the, them into place and lock them. Uh, the Spark U was a little a little larger than zip disk. It was pretty small. Yeah, I think I vaguely remember it. And I remember too, like there were a couple of different kinds of 
Let's see, one might not have been a zip. I don't know if they were both called zip discs, but like I remember yes. there were zip discs and they were about a hundred. Jazz. Thank you. That was the other one. Because zip discs were like around in the hundred megabyte range and then the jazz drives were, were double that, I think. The jazz were two gigabytes, I think. Oh, okay. So even bigger. Yeah, yeah, I can't even remember all this stuff. was one so. gigabyte. And then iOmega bought, uh, bought the company that uh, made the Spark U and discontinued the Spark U. So the Spark U disc, uh, the price dropped, and I got a few of them for $10. Which is not bad for that much storage in that day and age. Yeah. It's nice to know that even back then that was the the practice, you know. How do you kill off a competitor? Well, just buy them and cancel their product lines. Hi, Fitbit. <laughs> yeah, the the jazz were very expensive. And I, yeah, remember, I remember the the Sparky discs were forty something and then they dropped to ten dollars. Yeah, the jazz drives. I never had a jazz drive. I had I did eventually pick up a zip drive, but I mean, the technology did not last, did not endure. But for a while, it was pretty cool. And then the advent of the SD cards. Well, you're leaving out a whole history of like... Sorry, I shouldn't be chewing into the microphone. You're leaving out the whole history of, you know, memory cards in general, where you're getting into stuff like... Because before there was SD, there was... Uh, MMC and there was Compact Flash. Compact Flash was ubiquitous for a while. And SD was kind of the plucky young upstart. But I mean, it very quickly supplanted, or well, quickly might be the wrong word, but it did eventually supplant Compact Flash. You know, a small part because of the form factor, right? Like Compact Flash, I still see Compact Flash a fair bit in, um, in industrial settings because a lot of devices will still use it to store configuration data. And to be fair, Compact Flash is actually really resilient. If you need some kind of hardened, um, non-volatile storage, Compact Flash is not a bad way to go. But yeah, for consumer applications, SD and its smaller size and the fact that it thus enabled much smaller form factors, has it's the king now. I have a memory card reader with all of those supported... <laughs> Yeah, and then they had probably some of the other ones too, like MMC or whatever the heck Sony mm -hmm. was doing at the time. Sony had their own spec yeah. for the longest time. MMC, and there's another one, and then the SD and the micro SD. Has four I think there was like XD maybe or some things. Because like Fuji was using... I was selling cameras at the time, so like I remember like the Fujis used one kind of memory card, and then the Sonys had their own thing. Canon largely had standardized on compact flash. Um, and then well, SD kind of moved in and supplanted it. There were cameras with CD writing also. I had a video camera that actually used miniature DVDs. Mm -hmm. I've seen those. They were all well and good until they didn't properly finalize a, uh, a video. To this day, I've still not fully recovered my wedding video. Uh-oh. Ah. I mean, I've got most of it, but the audio and the video continuously get out of alignment. I have to, like... Uh, it's a pain in the butt. The tracks just are completely out of sync with each other. 
So I got to actually spend some time chopping them both up and aligning them. But, you know, even then I didn't have the time. And who has the time now? I remember back then on the Congress, uh, Richard Stallman gave a conference and they used a, a, ca a camera that used CDs for recording. And at some point, the, the CD got corrupted. So they, and they, they were unable to, to get the video from the, from the CD. And I told them I was going to recover it. And I did. I recovered the video. Richard Stallman's talk. I had to use uh, video, video, video editing tools. I extracted the whole video from the from the container file it was on, and, uh, and repaired the video. Did you ever use Daemon tools? I have used Daemon tools, but back then I think I used um, Virtual Dub. Oh, Virtual Dub! I loved Virtual Dub! No. Oh, I used to use Virtual Dub all the time. I had to reconvert the video to another format. Video and yeah. audio streams. Yeah, Virtual Dub was, well, Virtual Dub was the king for a while of converting like DVD video to uh, anything else usable. MPEG-2 to whatever you needed. Um, I mean, nowadays, Handbrake is kind of the king of that. But before Handbrake, there was Virtual Dub. And man, that was great software. I love Virtual Dub. Yeah, I used it a lot back then. Yeah, for sure. I remember that very fondly. I wonder if it's still being maintained. Yeah, I, I imagine not, but... I remember I had some DVDs uh, for instructionals and other, other stuff. And I converted them all to a format and resolution appropriate for my phone. Nice. Yeah, that way I had all the uh, reference, uh, references, videos, and everything available on my phone when I needed them. For sure. Handy. I mean, I think I mostly use it for, like, yeah, converting DVDs to stuff that could just reside on my computer, but <clears throat> whatever. Same basic idea. Just, you know, can take your videos with you and not have to constantly be swapping out DVDs. <laughs> Which, I mean, I guess I still kind of do today. It's just that now it's, you know, every bit of optical media I bring into the house gets, uh, gets ripped with handbrake and stuffed on the Plex server, which I can still access externally. You know, me sitting here in this bar, I can access my Plex server at home right now, even though I'm hundreds of kilometers away. <laughs> so you have it available through a service or something? Um, yeah, if you get Plex Pass, then, like, Plex is free. Plex is free to download and use. Like, you can set up a Plex media server for free. But then if you subscribe to Plex Pass, um, remote connectivity is one of the features that gets enabled. Nice. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before. It's really useful on trips because, you know, all of the different, if, if the kids like, if we just need the kids to be quiet in the car for an hour or two while we drive, we can give them 
um, <laughs> a device or something. And, and like literally, like I can just download a movie on the fly and they can watch it. And then, or usually what I'll do is I'll, you know, because I don't like the data charges, um, I'll download a bunch of movies ahead of time and then they can watch them offline because, you know, you can not, I mean, Netflix does something similar, right? Like Netflix allows you to download and cache shows to watch when you're offline. And you can do that with Plex too. And so, you know, I download a handful of movies off of my media server. Um, and then, you know, when I get to the hotel or wherever we're going that night, if there's Wi-Fi, I can swap out any movies. They're like, oh, I don't want to watch that one. How about watch this one instead? Okay, cool. I'll make sure that that's on the phone for tomorrow or whenever I need it next. It's pretty handy. It's very handy. And I can't, I still can't fully believe that I live in an era where it's even possible. A lot of things that are happening today, we believe that they weren't possible back then. Yeah, I mean, some of it's kind of in the realm of not even in your wildest dreams, you know? Yeah. Uh, have you seen the actual the flying cars? They're already a thing and commercially available. I've I've heard some mention of them, but I haven't really bothered digging into the news stories, no. Yeah, there's one that is like uh, it, it ha it's like a helicopter. Yep. And it already has a out of pilot and other features. Was Liberty? Check. Yeah, L dash V Liberty. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. L dash V is the company's name. The, their car is named Liberty. Interesting. No, I haven't really looked that up. I mean, <laughs> I guess that was always the joke about, you know, how you know that, you know, what do we have in the future? Well, flying cars. So I guess the future is now. <laughs> that said, I think I still probably prefer to have wheels for the time being. I'll be an early adopter of some technologies, but large objects that I strap myself into and move at velocity is not in that category. Okay, it's here. It's $599,000. Okay, so the price is a little restrictive. Yeah, and there's a, that's the regular version. There's, it includes 150000 worth of options. And there's the sports car, the sports edition, which is 399000 thousand dollars wow before taxes yeah, well <laughs> yes because you know that's the sort of car yeah. you get when a tesla seems too pedestrian yeah and the the one with the extra options includes safety of dual controls efis i don't know what that is power heating details in hand laid carbon in view Exclusive colors and color scheme, exclusive customization options, Italian design and handcrafted interior using premium level materials, certificate stating that you're one of the 90 Pal V Liberty owners with a gold plated copy of the serial number tag. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's uh, to the event. The oh, the launch event. Yeah. Uh, right now, it's for the rich, but it's it's there. <laughs> well, and I mean that's kind of the curve of technology in general, right? Seed ROMs used yeah. to cost thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, as you see that uptake in adoption, then you know. Yes, you're bringing in more revenue, but that enables you to open up your production pipelines. And mm-hmm. so, like, I, I, I get it. I get how it works, but still, I'm just, I'm not at the point yet where I'm confident that I could strap myself into a, uh, a large, ve- or into a vehicle of any size, really, that moved uh, without benefit of wheels, or at least was capable of moving without benefit of wheels um, and survive. Mm-hmm. And it's one is you can drive and you can, but uh, the the helix is retractable. It, uh, and you move some levers and stuff, and then they well, the helix comes out and and it's ready for flying. It all sounds very James Bondy. Yeah. Of course, you know, if I have to have any... Of, uh, there was a, a movie series about some guy with a, a very large truck, which was actually... Uh, uh, well, it was a sort of hybrid. It was a large truck, and then the, the, the truck container opened, and the car was actually a helicopter. Okay. Road Warriors, or what was it? Uh, it's not ringing any bells. Uh, no, I'm thinking now of uh, the James so. Bond car. The, uh, the James Bond car that I always wanted was the one from For Your Eyes Only. Which, uh, it was not a flying car. It was a, uh, an underwater car. The Highwayman. Wasn't that a Hugh Grant movie? Highwaymen. No, not that. Uh... Oh, no, I'm thinking of Lady and the Highwaymen, where Hugh Grant marries his cousin. Not like his actual cousin, but that's the, the, the plot. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the one. Let's see here. Whoa, that is a very large... <laughs> well, I guess you've just found the ep- Do you have a larger version of that? Because that is totally like cover art worthy. Yeah, actually, the one from the TV show was completely black. Uh-huh. That one, well, as you do. A paint job on it or something. Yeah, I see that. Huh. That is an interesting looking. I'm going to call it a bus. It's probably not a bus, but it looks like a bus. Yeah, if you look closely at the cabin, it's a helicopter. <laughs> yes, I suppose the cabin part is helicopterish. Yeah, and the, or is that actually like a helicopter, the, with a very large trailer all around it that yeah. it can drive around in? Yeah, and the helix is oh, wow. folded, and when the when the when the container opens, the helix unfolds. That is just that's a thing. I don't know what kind of thing it is, but that's a thing. 
Well, yeah. if there's a larger version of that, I'm totally using that as episode cover art because that's hilarious. And, uh, yeah, the TV show was called The Highway Man. The Highway Man. All right, cool. I am going to make a note of that. Man, oh man. 1987. 1987? Yeah. Interesting. People driving by here like madmen in the background. And it's on YouTube, I think. At least a, a couple episodes. Cool. I may have to check that out, you know, when I'm not <clears throat> binge-watching Avengers Endgame. <laughs> so, which is downloading right now. Hmm? Got to take advantage of this hotspot. I mean, this thing is only pulling 32 megabits per second, so it's still very pedestrian compared to what I got at home. But you know what? When I'm a few hundred kilometers from home and I don't have any other choice, I'll go with what I got. I will I will take it. Yeah. It's faster than three megabits. Mm, um, uh, well, it's been a fun chat, but it seems like it's a quiet night for everybody, so that's all right. Yeah. Yeah, just watch the old, the trailer, the promo trailer. <laughs> for um, for which? It real it really feels very eighty ish. <laughs> oh, for the highwayman. Okay, I'm totally gonna have to look that up now. I mean, I like I like a bit of eighties nostalgia now and again, but there's like there's there's the like eighties and then there's eighties. You know, there's <laughs> <laughs> there's good eighties yeah, and there's, there's... The, <laughs> there, there's the bad acting eighties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, there, there's a couple of different kinds of saturated. <laughs> yep, but that's kind of like everything '80s, right? Like there's there's '80s music and then there's '80s music. There's there's '80s movies and then there's '80s movies. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's it's funny. Like I'm trying to think, yeah. and you know, for all I know, this may not. But this, the, I so we took our kids to the Vermilion Fair. Uh, it's my wife's hometown and they have their county fair every year. And I mean, it's a big, it's a big agricultural fair. Mostly it's an agricultural community. So, you know, of course, but the thing is like, you know, they bring in the, the company is called West coast amusements and they're basically a traveling amusement park, right? They're, they're a traveling amusement park for hire. And, uh, so they show up and they set up, you know, all sorts of amusement park rides. And uh, mm -hmm. there's a midway, and it's like the one time a year that I'll go and have mini donuts. And uh, but they've got like a lot of the classic rides. There's a carousel and the Ferris wheel and the, some of the crazier ones that'll make you puke if you've had too many mini donuts. But uh, <laughs> but one of the ones that they always seem to have is the Tilt-A-Whirl, and I can never, for the life of me, look at the the Tilt-A-Whirl without uh without thinking of the 1985 film the explorers did you ever see that no so it's this it's one of those movies that kind of i don't know if it was inspired by some of what steven spielberg was trying to do or if it kind of wound up um or it wound up inspiring him a little bit, but it was, it was, um, it's notable for being actually the film debut of Ethan Hawke and of River Phoenix. 
you know, two, I mean, River Phoenix passed away, of course, but, uh, you know, two very well-known names from the, that, that era. And Ethan Hawke is still, I think, active as an actor today. Also featured Robert Picardo um, in, in, a, in a small role. But the, the whole idea was that, like, basically there's this one kid. So the kid played by Ethan Hawke, um, he lives in the D.C. area, and he keeps having this vivid dream about flying over a vast city-like circuit board. You know, it's like, it's a city, but it looks like a circuit board. Um, and he often has this dream after he falls asleep, like watching old sci-fi movies. War of the Worlds features prominently in, in the plot. And eventually he starts sketching the circuit board and he shows it to his buddy Wolfgang. This is River Phoenix's character, who's like, you know, sort of the, the typical child geeky prodigy type. And, uh, Wolfgang is able to actually build a microchip based on the drawing and then using the microchip, they're able to um, create an electromagnetic bubble that, you know, surrounds this mm -hmm. small area. And by there's something they can do to kind of vary its size. Um, and then, you know, they toy around with it a bit more and discover that the bubble is capable of, you know, like it's basically it, it, it's it's, you know, the typical sci fi magical transport technology mm -hmm. can move. <laughs> basically as far as they need to as fast as they need to without the usual ill effects you know it's not gonna like inertia doesn't exist inside the bubble and it also completely contains an oxygen supply so they build a spaceship out of an old tilt-a-whirl car and so every time i see the tilt-a-whirl i just can't help but think of the explorers because that was one of those movies that i had like my parents had taped it off the tv and i watched it so many times when i was a kid and i'm sure that if i go back now and watch it i'm gonna be just like what the heck is this? You know, I'm sure that it probably hasn't aged that well. I, I actually, I watched that movie. Yeah, and then like there's a. Well, they oh go the extraterrestrials. Were yeah, they meet really some aliens at the end. <laughs> yeah, who stole their dad's car? Who were like joyriding in their dad's yeah. car? <laughs> yeah, and then dad shows up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the fists on his head, <laughs> arms on the yeah. head. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. It's just like it was just it was so painfully eighties. If I go back and actually think about it now, it's just so painfully eighties. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, I don't know. But like, just just trying to think here. Like, okay, so it had Ethan Hawke, River Phoenix, James Cromwell was in it actually. Robert Picardo, Amanda Peterson. Why do I know that name? What else has she been in? Doogie Hauser, maybe that's where I know her from. I don't know. Anyways, just, yeah, just this, it's just a quirky movie. And there's sort of this, you know, it, it's interesting Classical reading about it on Wiki. Yeah, sort of, yeah, it's kind of the same. I mean, a lot of these 80s movies kind of follow a similar trajectory, right? You know, there's a group of boys or a group of kids, more broadly speaking, and there's, you know, a couple of crushes that maybe get developed across the course of the movie, but they go off and do something and it's some sort of wacky adventure that maybe is kind of dangerous, maybe isn't. We're not really sure whether it's aliens or, you know, I mean, the Goonies and the Cave and the old, oh my gosh. But yeah, it's just, it's very, like if I, if, my memory of it is that it's a very Spielbergian movie, but I'm sure that if I went back and watched it, um, I wouldn't think of it as such still. I mean, like, you know, it was, it was fairly typical for the sci-fi eighties movies of its day, which is to say that, you know, like it's, 
it's um ilm did the effects and you know it, like it had fairly significant makeup effects joe dante was the director what else did he do i know that name uh let's see what else has he directed small soldiers the second gremlins movie he's done some stuff on tv too oh he worked on csi new york i liked csi new york that was good of all the csi shows that was probably my favorite but uh yeah that's uh there, there's your 80s nostalgia right there's the explorers july 12th 1985 was the release date and the, oh, that's right maybe. they spoke with old movies quotes that was like the, their whole thing it's like they'd basically just been watching earth and like just learning about earth through movies and tv signals and that was kind of a thing like back then right it was like you know tv signals getting beamed out to space and whatnot and oh. what were the aliens thinking about us based on that and it's like literally everything mm-hmm. the aliens said to the kids was based on movies <laughs> it's just yeah even battlestar galactica the original series ended not quite ended but one of the last episodes one of the better episodes in that whole series <clears throat> featured them picking up a broadcast of the moon landing i think that was kind of more of the 70s but still like just that the sci-fi at that time that was a, a persistent idea oh <laughs> just reading the uh, the wikipedia entry explorers was a box office flock uh flop upon release it's since attracted a bit of a cult following um <clears throat> but then again when you release nine days after Back to the Future, you've got a really hard box office fight ahead of you. Yeah. That's right. Oh. Yeah, and it reminded me, one, one, uh, 1978, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh, my gosh. 1988, Return of the Killer Tomatoes. I wonder if the release dates were, like, exactly the same. Uh, return is April 22nd. 1988, and don't have the release date for Attack. October 20th. Oh, pity. <clears throat> it would have been cool if they could have gotten the release date to the day. But then 10 years is I kind of an odd return. cycle. <laughs> the Return of the Killer Tomatoes is uh, about half of the movie is full of commercials. <laughs> well, that's one way to do filler. Yeah. It was a, uh, it was shamelessly filled with commercials, and do, when they start doing it, they comment that they ran out of budget and that they had to do it to fi- to finish the movie. Hey, you got to <laughs> fill up the runtime somehow. <laughs> oh my gosh! Actually, speaking of, I saw today uh, on Twitter. Mark Hamill, I don't think he tweeted this out originally, but he commented on it. And it's a video of an extended version of, it's from the screen test for the original Star Wars. And it's basically Hamill and Harrison Ford dialoguing through like an extended version of the dialogue surrounding like they've just found out Alderaan's been destroyed, but they know they need to get the plans to the rebels. Um, it's just like this extended scene and it's like it's it's very like it's from the screen test so you know like obviously this is based you know it's everything that's happening in the scene is based on a very early iteration of the star wars plot and of course you know in star wars um after they find it alderaan's destroyed they're almost immediately captured by the death star and there's no indication that that's what would have happened in the scene as they're screen testing it 
But I mean, obviously, the, the the story evolves over time. But still, it's just interesting to watch them dialoguing back and forth, especially Hamill. <laughs> actually, actually, they're both interesting to watch because, like Hamill, you can see like he's very he's he seems he seems nervous. He seems a little bit uncomfortable, <clears throat> and he seems to have like absolutely no clue what the heck he's even talking about. Right. Like you can kind of tell he's reading the lines and he's doing all right with the delivery, but you can tell like he's like, you know, probably behind his eyes. He's just thinking like, what in the heck even is this that I'm saying? Like, you know, Harrison Ford, though, he's just he's already Han Solo. Or maybe it's more correct to say that Han Solo is already Harrison Ford. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, and he's he's just going on. With the lines, you know, he's saying what he's saying. And he probably has no idea what the hell he's saying either in terms of, you know, where this connects to the overall story of the movie or anything. But he is totally, like, it's it's Han Solo. It's Han Solo and some guy who mm-hmm. is going to be Luke one day. Mm-hmm. So, fun, fun things. Ancient footage. George Clooney was in Attack of the Killer Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Well... This proved to be an interesting recording in spite of itself, but I think I'm going to pack it up because unfortunately I, with the client I'm working with, I have a very early start time. So me and my bed need to become acquainted a lot sooner than uh, normal. Okay, have a good night. Yes, you do too. And thanks for making it out. This will be a shorter episode, but hopefully an interesting one for anybody linking it and listening in. Yeah. All right. Well, you have a good night. Talk to you later. If you want to participate more directly in the podcast, you can send us an email at ultimacodex at gmail.com, or if you're feeling a bit braver, you can leave us a voice message in one of three places, the podcast website, our Facebook page, or on anchor.fm. You're also welcome to join us on Discord to chat with us and to lurk or contribute to podcast recordings when they happen. If you want to join the Ultima Dragons, you can do so at udic.org, where you can choose your very own dragon name. You can also find the Ultima Dragons on Facebook and on Google+. You can follow at Ultima Dragons on Twitter or join them on Slack or Discord. And if you're feeling really old school, you can even fire up a Telnet client and check out the Wearmount. If you'd like to support Spam 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 Humbug, you can do so at Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to episodes the day before they go live for everyone else. You'll also get access to behind-the-scenes audio on occasion and possibly other interesting content. But if a monthly subscription isn't your thing, you can always buy your video games at GOG. We are a partner of that fine site, and every time you buy one or more games at GOG via the links on our websites or in the show notes, that helps us out. But we also welcome your moral support. You can like the Ultima series on Facebook, follow at Ultima Codex on Twitter, or leave the podcast a review on iTunes. And you're welcome to share our episodes with your friends and social media circles. Spam 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 Humbug is a production of the Ultima Codex. You can find show notes online at spamspamspamhumbug.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be virtuous. Be virtuous.